this town you seem to bring. Hello listeners and welcome to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Office Hours, the show where I interview researchers and faculty from the University of California, Irvine, and bring you the fascinating stories from their fields. Today we have Dr. Emily Penner, a professor of education uh, in the UCI School of Education, who specializes in studying uh, inequality in K-12 schools and advocating for uh, beneficial policy. Dr. Penner, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to uh, have a conversation today. Um, so before we start, um, could you give a brief inter overview of what kinds of research you do and uh, how you assess problems and solutions in education? Sure. Um, so I get excited about research that examines uh, questions that help uh, mostly K-12 school districts here in the United States uh, think through the kinds of problems they're facing, meeting the needs of the students that they've identified that are struggling. Um, I also get excited about questions that relate to how schools and districts try to staff their schools, um, recruit and retain teachers, um, and uh, help fill their classrooms with folks who are going to be best able to meet the needs of those students that districts are, are trying to support. Right. What would you say are some of the biggest problems in American schools today? Oh, that's that's a pretty big question. There, there's a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks in um, schools today who are working their very hardest. Um, so let's start with the good stuff. <laughs> there's so many dedicated individuals out there, um, but uh, as we know. You know, they um, are often trying to make a lot out of um, having not so much support, not very many resources. Um, they were trying to do a lot with a little. Um, and that's a big challenge, I think, facing a lot of schools uh, here in Orange County, in California, and in schools across the country. Um, so I think resources is a huge challenge um, uh, that schools uh, grapple with constantly. I would totally agree. I think um, everyone always says, you know, oh, I had that one teacher in high school or, you know, elementary school who inspired me mm -hmm. to, you know, love a certain, like, field or love learning, and they always have to stretch so much with, like, limited funding. Yep, or limited time. Um, you know, like I said, teachers are such dedicated folks, um, and many of them go above and beyond in terms of um, investing their own time, their own resources, um, absolutely their creativity and imagination uh, into making schools and classrooms as good as they can be. Um, but in many schools, um, there's a lot more that we could be doing to support those efforts. Definitely. Um, how can we measure inequality in schools and what kind of issues are affecting them? Well, there's a lot of different ways to think about inequality. Um, a, one of the ways that we think about inequality is inequality in terms of some of the things I just talked about, like the resources that different kinds of schools have. Some schools have a lot more funding than others. Um, they have local sources to um, of property taxes or even um, donations from families that they can invest in schools, and other places don't have that um, resource base. Uh, another kind of inequality is inequality in terms of the opportunities available to students. Um, some schools, um, 
you know, that's a function of those resources, but a lot of schools offer certain kinds of courses in some areas. Um, you said you were a drama major. You know, some schools are able to have the flourishing drama programs and some aren't. Um, some have lots of different kinds of AP classes or reading intervention programs for the younger kids, um, and some schools don't have that. Um, and then there's another kind of inequality uh, that's more focused on the kinds of things that happen um, for students who've been in those schools. Um, there's inequality in terms of the outcomes for those students. Um, different kinds of, uh, you know, higher and lower test scores, um, higher and lower proficiency levels in terms of reading skills or math skills. Uh, and we measure each of those different kinds of inequalities and think about them in different ways. Um, but the sort of overlaying structure that relates to all of that is often that there's inequalities in our broader society in terms of family resources and income, um, race, ethnicity, uh, other dimensions. And a lot of those kinds of inequalities then impact the kinds of access to resources and teaching and programs and outcomes sometimes um, in schools. Right. A lot of different issues uh, coming together. How would you say the challenges are different um, in you know, high school compared to elementary school? Um, well, uh, the <laughs> in elementary school, a lot more of the learning is driven more by the teachers and the parents. Um, it's not to say that parents aren't involved in high school <laughs> or the teachers are certainly still involved in high school. But a lot of the decision making about what classes to take, like that's not a, a decision an elementary school kid is making. Um, sometimes they're choosing, do I want to do after school soccer <laughs> or do I like to play at recess or read? Um, but a lot more of the structure is, is set up by the adults. Right. And then in middle school, kids start to take a lot more ownership over their learning um, and their social preferences and interactions. And then in high school, um, all the more so. And we're, you know, helping them, helping students make transitions toward adulthood, um, towards college, uh, maybe, or careers. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a it's a gradual process of, of passing control from adults to um, kids um, and young adults. Um, and um, with that, you know, there's inherent challenges in terms of uh, trying to support students at, in what's developmentally the most appropriate. So in addition to some of the developmental differences um, between elementary and high school, for say, um, there's also the issue that in elementary school, kids are, all kids are developing basic fundamental skills, like learning how to read and learning how to do addition and subtraction. And the gaps between kids' skill levels are maybe not so large. But what happens over time is those differences sort of compound. And if some kids really never learn some of those fundamentals very well, by the time they're getting to high school, the gaps are just very large. And it's really discouraging to be a high school student who's still struggling to read when your peers are reading novels and writing college entrance essays. Um, and so the kinds of interventions that can be needed in high school are just much more substantial. Yeah, definitely. Um, what are some of the, a few measures, obviously there's a lot that you know, can be done, but um, what kinds of things do you think could help decrease these equality issues? Well, um, I think that there's different kinds of investments that could be made at different ages. Um, I think uh, there 
in early grades, I think it could be really helpful to add a lot more rigorous supports uh, for students to keep them from falling behind early. Um, and in fact, I would even move before kindergarten and try to um, strengthen our um, early child care programming um, so that students from low-income families might have access to really good quality early care. Um, then I'd want to continue supporting students um, through elementary grades to try to make sure they're basic skills are ready to go by the time they're transitioning to later elementary school and middle school. Um, and by the time you're getting to middle and high school, there's still the need for that kind of intervention. But you also have to start to think about how students are feeling in terms of their identities and engagement with school. Um, the social dynamics become so much more important. Um, and having students feel like teachers are affirming them, are meeting their needs, are connecting with them, are challenging them. Um, those all come, those are important early on, but those become all the more salient, I think, later on. Definitely, there's a lot of challenges to figure out emotionally in high school. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, in one of your uh, publications, you explained how ethnic studies courses um, provide culturally relevant material um, that can somehow, or that can, um, that can in some cases, help um, minority students engage. Um, could you talk a little more about this? Sure, that's actually a great example of what I was talking about. Um, so let me give you a quick little snippet about what this study was. Um, I worked with another researcher, Thomas D. at Stanford. He was um, uh, my postdoc mentor there, actually. And we uh, have a partnership with the San Francisco Unified School District um, and their assistant superintendent for high schools. and. Um, in that district, as in many districts, uh, they're concerned that some of the course offerings were not meeting the needs of underrepresented groups and some and students of color in particular. So a group of teachers got together and created an ethnic studies class, which is uh, a different kind of social studies history class in that sort of genre um, that uh, tries to um, structure the course around the histories and social movements and uh, interactions and engagement of uh, individuals in the United States uh, from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, and it's the kind of content that's not usually included in our typical US history class. You know, we hear a lot about the Boston Tea Party, <laughs> about um, the manifest destiny, Western expansion of the United States, those kind of topics. Um, this is trying to focus on the con uh, contributions of groups like the United Farm Workers, who rallied to try to get uh, supports for uh, people doing backbreaking labor um, in farm fields. Um, it's groups uh, like folks in the civil rights movement. And you might touch on that in your US history class, but um, really trying to get to know the ways that these folks are um, not just a part of history that, you know, underrepresented groups should know about, but they're part of our American history that we should all know about. Um, and the idea is by having that kind of representation and by pairing it with work where students think about their own families and backgrounds, their own identities, and thinking a lot about how um, the structure of the United States, different stereotypes, different biases that people might hold might be affecting themselves and might also shape how they view either themselves or others uh, like their friends and peers, uh, thinking through all of those kinds of things can help students adopt a different lens for how they see themselves as learners and contributors to the world. And that that process and that course that they take 
um, can be really transformative uh, for students of color who feel isolated and marginalized um, in a typical classroom setting. Right. I think that's so important, especially given how biased um, certain history books can be, or at least definitely were. Um, still are. Still are. Still are. <laughs> um, so I understand you restructured a struggling school in Oakland and helped form uh, Greenleaf Elementary School. Um, what were some of the challenges involved in that? Yeah, so that was in a previous lifetime. <laughs> um, before becoming a professor, I was uh, an elementary school teacher. I mostly taught second grade, um, and I taught in Oakland Unified. Um, and when I taught, it was at the height of No Child Left Behind, um, which was a federal education policy that was very um focused on improving achievement for students. And if you kind of remember, um, they had this goal that was um, impossible, basically, that 100% of students were going to become proficient by, I think it was the year 2014. (laughs) Um, That obviously didn't happen. Um, But as a byproduct of that, they started monitoring schools' progress um, on um, improving student achievement. And the school where I worked um, started out very performing very poorly and the idea was that if your school performs poorly enough years in a row it would get closed and that's exactly what happened in my school Um, they made improvements um, but they started so far behind there was almost I mean they made very substantial improvements but there was so much ground to make up they basically couldn't do it so um, in my first year teaching Um, We officially, at the end of the year, failed. No child left behind. And we closed down. Um, But the closure wasn't that, like, the school closed. It meant that we actually got together with um, other teachers and parents and community members and school district leaders. And we, in my second year of teaching, developed a plan for a new school. So we had this one year to create our plan, to involve all these stakeholders, and then in the next year, we reopened. Um, And at at the time, it was called um, Greenleaf Elementary. It's actually changed its name to be Greenleaf uh, K-8 because they, um, uh, in the intervening years, had really successfully um, transformed the educational experience for students and um, student performance increased substantially and it was a really popular school and they decided that they actually wanted to continue to allow students to stay within the school through middle school. Wow, that's amazing. Um, You've taught bilingual classes also. Um, What do you think makes an effective bilingual teacher and how can we help students who have English as a second language? Those are all really good questions. Um, So California has an interesting history with bilingual education. Um, For a long time, we actually really didn't, uh, not only did we keep, not only did we not invest in it, we actually kind of prohibited it. Um, And so a couple of years ago, we got a chance, the voters actually overturned previous legislation, um, and we all voted uh, overwhelmingly in favor of Proposition 58, which now allows um, more bilingual uh, classrooms and dual immersion programs. Um, And so I think California is sort of catching up to a lot of other states that have been investing a lot more in um, bilingual education. Um, There are a number of different models for how bilingual education can be implemented. Um, And I'm not an expert on the research about which one is better, um, but uh, it is 
better to start earlier. <laughs> and um, it is important to have really strong language models um, who have native or native-like fluency in both languages um, and to give students practice um, speaking both. Um, and the peer interaction piece of that is very important too. Um, and the other thing is that in California, of course, we have students who speak very many different languages. And so um, it's a going to be an ongoing um, push to try to support language development for speakers of not just Spanish and Mandarin, but Farsi and Vietnamese and many, many other languages um, that um, are represented in, uh, among students in our schools. Um, the other thing I will say is that um, if students learn to read in their native language, whatever that is, it's much easier to then learn to read in a second language. So supporting students who speak a language other than English at home um, by helping them cultivate their language skills in whatever their other languages or languages are is, uh, I think, one of the best things we can be doing. Um, Unfortunately, our schools aren't structured all that well to support that right now, and we don't have a teaching force that um, can support that kind of development for all kinds of students and in all kinds of locations. So I think um, you asked me earlier if there were other things we might invest in in schools to try to reduce inequality. That's another huge one, I think. Um, for a state like California, investing in um, language supports for non-native English speakers uh, would be huge. Uh, and I, you know, we do that some, but we could do that so much more and um, for a longer amount of time so those students could become really proficient readers and speakers and learners in not just English, but in another language that they um, speak at home. Right, I definitely agree. Um, and I didn't know about the, I never thought about how um, teaching someone to read in their own native language would be forced so much more effective than trying to force them <laughs> to read in some other language. Yeah, well, and do you remember learning to read in English? How many crazy rules are there in English? <laughs> so many. And and um, letters don't have a one-to-one um, -one correspondence with sounds, and we combine them in weird combinations. Um, some other languages are much more straightforward <laughs> than English. Um, and of course, it's a important skill for our students to learn English and to get over the um, absurdity that O, U, and G, and H can, uh, you know, foist on your reading skills. Um, but having support in another language um, can really help be a bridge for them. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you think are some of the most um, glaring omissions or um, maybe harmful inclusions that are still in some curriculums. We mentioned uh, the history curriculums sometimes lacking. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, so there's definitely the fact that our state is diverse and our content isn't as diverse as our students. Um, that's a huge issue. Um, and we sort of talk about the idea that there's a single American history, but there's so many different um, histories that are all part of American history. And um, I think there's a lot that we can learn from uh, thinking through the histories of different groups um, that can teach us a lot. Um, I think we also overlook some of the contributions of um, underrepresented groups in terms of different ways of learning science and math. Um, and I think that and uh, especially when it comes to like the world around us. Um, there were 
um, Native groups that were here before that have different ways of understanding and interacting with the world. And there's a long history of, of, of knowing about how to interact with it that can maybe teach us some important things, especially as we face issues around climate change. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's folks who've been here who know how to help the land kind of support itself and, you know, grow in a, a safe way. And I think there's a lot that we could be learning that we're just ignoring. Um, I think likewise, um, you know, there's lessons about how different cultures think through math and um, teach math and learn about it. Um, and maybe that would also um, inform some of our practice and some of our understanding. Um, I think, you know, American kids have this unfortunate um, experience where they sort of get coached or um, acculturated to feel like maybe they are or are not a math person. Yeah, that's yeah, I'm sure you've maybe heard that or felt that way yourself. Um, and I think there's some important work out there that suggests that everybody has mathematical capabilities and that some people are just made to feel like they don't. Um, and I think that that uh, there's some really powerful unlearning of some of those stereotypes and lessons uh, that I think could be happening, too. Yeah, that's so true, especially if someone just never really gets it explained to them personally and, you know, then some parents are like sitting down helping out and then some, you know, don't have the time or the, you know, ability. Right. And, you know, and some get pressure from their parents and that makes them feel worse about it, too. Um, right. <clears throat> there's a but, you know, there's a there's so many ways we could be teaching some of this content to students and we just don't have the either the knowledge or the time or the resources. Um, and I think, you know, s students are such capable. I mean, most kids are so capable, curious, and with the right kind of support and the right kind of encouragement can learn just incredible things. Um, and it's up to us to just keep trying. I mean, as educators, it's up to us <laughs> to try to keep unlocking um, the right sources of that knowledge um, and the right ways to encourage them to direct their own learning to make it happen. Right. Um, and speaking of those kinds of things, what what is your opinion on the advantages and drawbacks of standardized testing? Well, so that's a that's a tricky question too. Um, I think one of the best things about standardized testing um, is that it helps us compare how students are doing in different places, at least in the ideal. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, and I think that in general, data collection about student progress is important. It's important for teachers to know what skills students are mastering and what they aren't. Um, and some of that kind of assessment um, is what we call more of a formative assessment, where it's along the way teachers are collecting information. Um, you know, what, um, how are they doing with three-digit addition? And are they remembering how uh, to carry the one? And do they have that skill mastered? That kind of thing. Um, but standardized testing is often more of a summative assessment. It happens at the end to figure out what from that whole year students have learned or not. Um, and those are, it's important to do that kind of assessment because we want to make sure that schools are really affording students um, similar opportunities to learn. Um, but it can also go off the walls a little bit or off the rails a little bit, right? Um, first of all, we can put insane amounts of pressure on students <laughs> to perform. And that um, can be really, can kind of undermine the purpose of these assessments and also be really detrimental for students. Um, 
the other thing is that some of these assessments, even though we want them to be objective uh, comparisons of students, they're written in ways that really um, help prime some students with cultural knowledge about their own backgrounds um, so that they can perform better than other students. Um, So let me give you an example of that. Um, When I taught second grade, we had this reading passage uh, on one of our standardized assessments at the end of the year. And it was describing a family who was planting paper whites um, with their kids around the holidays. Well, there's a great compound word in there, paper white. Um, And my mom's a florist, so I happen to know that a paper white is a flower. But a lot of kids have no idea. And they read paper and they read white and they think that this family is burying sheets of paper in the ground. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So that's a pretty innocuous example, right? I think most kids are pretty disadvantaged uh, about knowing what a paper white is. Um, But there's other examples that are a little bit more culturally nuanced, um, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. A lot of um, kids from, you know, multiple generations of American family backgrounds know exactly what a PB&J is. But there's plenty of kids out there who are coming from other backgrounds who don't eat peanut butter at home, have no idea why you would put it with jelly on bread. Um, and so then they read this example and they're very confused. Um, and so those kids might be really fluent readers, just like you might be a really fluent reader reading about a paper white, um, but you have no idea what it is. Um, and so there's ways that tests can be written that can really disadvantage students who have all the reading skills or all the math skills, all the comprehension skills. Um, And so there's sort of some inherent bias in some of these tests and the way that they're written and the kind of content that's reflected in them that can give us false representations of what students know. Um, And unfortunately, there's usually some systematic differences so that students from underrepresented groups tend to have uh, less close alignment with how the content of some of these tests is written. Um, And that can disadvantage them in terms of their performance. and it can make it look like they're not learning as much as they might have actually learned. Yeah, those are definitely big issues to solve. Um, what do you think about how the differences between different kinds of schools, such as public, magnet, charter, how did those kinds of things affect um, inequality? Um, well, so they, they're sort of a product of inequality in some ways, and they affect inequality too. Um, So as we've sort of talked about, different kinds of schools have different access to resources, provide different opportunities for students. Um, And the idea behind, say, a magnet school or a charter school is often that um, families uh, feel like the kinds of experiences they want their students to have in school are not being provided by some of the typical public schools that Either there are neighborhood schools or the ones that are the ones that their students would go to. So over time, uh, districts have created things like magnet schools to have specialty programs, maybe in arts or science or any number of other topics, um, to try to um, provide some of those uh, enrichment experiences in the context of a public school. Um, A charter school is sort of trying to do a similar thing, but it's usually being organized sort of outside of the regular school district because people want to provide a different kind of schooling experience that they're not allowed to provide um, within a a normal school district. 
And sometimes that's to try to respond to um, families who um, have some disadvantages in terms of accessing good quality schools within um, a regular K-12 district. And other times it's because pretty advantaged families get together and set up one of these kind of charter schools. Um, and, And effectively that can actually help concentrate all of the resources that they have um, and uh, make inequality even worse. Right. Um, And we kind of touched on a lot of these issues, but if you were appointed secretary of education (laughs) or some other high-level position, what sort of reforms would you try to enact? Um, Well, I think I did sort of highlight this a little bit. I would really like to see, um, first of all, just a a general increase in funding for schools, but then also some pretty substantial efforts to try to equalize how that funding is distributed. Uh, I think right now we um, are uh, too, we allow too much inequality between districts in terms of what they're allow, uh, what what funding they have to work with. Um, I think we also allow district boundaries often to work, uh, to exclude, uh, students from different opportunities. Um, and I don't really see us like getting rid of school districts. That, that doesn't, doesn't seem like a thing we're going to be doing anytime soon. Um, but I think that trying to make school districts have more similar educational experiences within them um, would be a good uh, a good place to move to. Yeah. Um, and finally, what do you think, um, what can the average listener do to help sort of be aware and contribute to helping American education? Well, so the thing is that the average listener probably was educated in an American school. <laughs> There's some that were educated other places, but um, probably y- the average listener went to a school that they thought was all right. It was um, a place that they liked, um, uh, but and a place that they felt like um, they supported them. But not everybody has had that experience, um, and I think it's helpful to sort of think about um, the the other kinds of schools that are out there. Go to um, you know, learn about those other places and try to think about the kinds of kids that are going there and think about the kinds of resources that might be needed um, to support their learning um, and um, think about ways that you might be able to either through volunteering your time or your resources or uh, maybe through um, political participation and voting um, think about ways that you can support the educational experiences of kids in all different kinds of schools um, I think that we are often, there's so much pressure for us to think very, um, in a very specific way about the experiences of our own kids or our own friends and family members. Um, But I think it's really helpful to remember that there's really wonderful kids out there in all kinds of different schools and that they deserve just as much of an opportunity to learn and flourish and thrive as your own kids do. And it's because there's so much competition, because the opportunities feel really scarce right now, it can be really hard to think a little bit about some of those other places and those other students. Um, but I would encourage our average listener to try to broaden our, their views and broaden the umbrella of who they're thinking about. Um, you know, all of those kids are our kids. Those are all American kids. And um, I think we can do a lot more to support all of them. And I think we all benefit from um, from watching all of those other students that we just don't even know in all those other places we've never been um, and helping them to thrive too. That is such a true statement. Um, well, this was a great, um, this was a great opportunity to learn more. I had no idea about a lot of the things you were talking about. And um, 
Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Um, listeners, that was Dr. Emily Penner on inequality in K-12 schools. I'm Sabelle Kaler, and this is Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM. Listeners, have a great day, uh, and be kind to each other out there. This is Office Hours signing off.